The following podcast contains potentially massive spoilers for the movie referenced in the episode title. If you have not yet seen this movie and wish to be surprised when you do, consider yourself warned and turn back now. Hello out there and welcome back to Schlock Till You Drop. That's right, we are on our way back from a summer hiatus where life decided it was going to beat down any plans we might have otherwise made. Uh, To that end, I know many of you were expecting the without warning episode that we promised at the end of our Avengers special. Well, life has still been kicking us in the ass, so that hasn't happened yet. With luck, by the time this particular episode airs, we'll have that one recorded, and it'll be in the editing stage, and it'll be up very, very soon. But I do have something for you, some new content, something actually very special. This is another special episode. I had the privilege of attending Scares That Care Charity Weekend 5 in Williamsburg, Virginia at the beginning of August. While I was there, I got to see the independent darling, uh, I'm Dreaming of a White Doomsday, written, produced, directed by Mike Lombardo. It is an independent movie. It's making its way around the film circuits right now, and the movie's incredible. Uh, We will do a review on it later in the year once it is available on home video, but while I was at the convention, I did get the opportunity to sit down with Mike and talk to him a little bit about the movie and his influences and kind of where he's going from here and some of his very unique marketing strategies for his films that he puts out. So sit back and relax. We hope you enjoy this interview, and I'll talk to you again soon. All right. We are here with Mike Lombardo, the producer, director, writer, editor, multi-hat wearing uh, creator of Dreaming of a White Doomsday. Uh, Mike, thank you for doing this. It's a pleasure being here. I've, uh, I mean, I'm used to meeting you in dark hallways. But... <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> Uh, we are live at Scares That Care uh, the last day, so everyone's tired, everyone's drunk, people have no voices. Uh, great day. So how has the reception for White Doomsday been here? Uh, phenomenal. I really feel like White Doom- that Scares That Care is part of White Doomsday just because it's you know, everyone here has been seeing it from the start. So I was really excited to screen it here. We had standing room only. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was there. I, I saw that the... The standing room only there. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it's been great. Everyone really likes it, which is really, really nice, because out of all the conventions, this is the one that I cared the most about what people thought of it. Right. <laughs> they all were there. You know, they're literally seeing and funding it with their buying DVDs. So Yeah, really cool. that, which is awesome. And I know you said it's been a, you know, a three-year project to get this thing made. How does it feel to finally have it out there in the wild for people to, to see? It was terrifying at first <laughs> um, because it's serious, and I was never doing serious. So now that people are kind of – through the grapevine, I've heard that you know it's depressing. I don't get the I don't get the weird looks anymore. So people are used to it. So that's really good for me because right, it's a complete tonal shift for me. Um, but it's scary. But I mean, it's been doing so well. We've got five awards and seven nominations so far on the fest circuit, which is incredible. That that is awesome. Yeah, that is super grateful for that. Um, super grateful to the team because they would they, without them the movie wouldn't exist. So you know, oh yeah, that's very very cool. Um, a little bit on the, the production. I know you've said that it was a, a difficult shoot in really rough conditions. I think you were saying you were filming some of the scenes in negative uh, 12 degrees with the wind chill. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, a lot of the directors of a certain generation talk about uh, 
when they were starting into the movie industry, it was like, oh, I've got to make my Evil Dead. I've got to make my Evil Dead. <laughs> Do you feel like this this was your Evil Dead? That that gorilla? I'm going to make this damn the torpedoes. Um, I mean, I love that analogy. Um, I would never compare myself to anything with Evil Dead because it's so far out of my league. But uh, Evil Dead was a huge inspiration to me when I was a kid. For that right. reason, that's why I started doing shorts. So it's always kind of been that mentality. And I honestly, I never really thought about it in that context. Yes, absolutely, it is. It was we cobbled this movie together with nothing. It was all favors and everything, right. and it it came together. So I can only hope that it attains a fraction of the endurance that Evil Dead has. I'd be very, very happy. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I know having watched the movie too, it was, you know, and having followed you on social media and things like that, I kind of had a little bit of an idea of what to expect, but still there were a lot of things in there that, that blew my expectations away. Um, primarily, you know, you see a lot of the movies, the independent things that come out that are on YouTube and things like that. Um, there's a certain aspect to the camera quality or the sound or the acting or something like that, that marks it as, an independent low budget movie, but white doomsday seems to have avoided a lot of those things. The cinematography is very clean and crisp and the, the color that's in the different scenes to set stages, you know, when you have the, the almost the dream sequences have a different stage from the, the regular stuff and the, the sound quality and the actors nailed their roles. Was that something you went into it consciously trying to avoid? Yes, um, very much. I knew because I was, this was my first, I mean, the stall was kind of like the middle ground for me. It was still funny, but it was gearing, it was edging a little bit more towards serious subject matter. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wanted to get to doing dark and serious, which is how I, when I write prose, it's always very, very dark and serious. And I just never felt that I had the, the, the experience and the tech quality to be able to pull that off. So when we started to do Doomsday, I knew that with this movie, if it was even a single week length, the whole thing would crumble. Oh, yeah. Because it's such a dramatic piece, and that was fucking terrifying. Every oh, day yeah. I was terrified it wasn't going to work. But I had a great crew, and I'm obsessive with detail and stuff. So when we reshot stuff so many times, and I held everybody to a much higher level of standard than a normal person could reasonably expect people that are not being paid to do, but right. <laughs> everybody was super passionate about the project and they all understood that if they brought their a game, then everything would benefit from it. And it really did. And it I did. Yes. Can't stress enough how much I appreciate everybody's work on the movie. Oh yeah. But yeah, if it, if it was, if something was even slightly wrong, like we're reshooting it. Like everyone hated me. I'm so <laughs> fucking picky about everything, but I mean, it worked. It, 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 it was did. worth it in the end. That attention to detail really comes through in it. Like, one of the things that I noticed as well was uh, a lot of times when we're in the in the bunker, there are scenes where it, it, it seems like the lighting in the scene slowly transitions from light to dark. And it, it happened many, many times. At first, I was like, well, it's just the way that that particular angle worked. But it happened so much. And it, to me, created that foreboding mm -hmm. mood. Was that something that you went into when you were framing the shots that you were looking at? Yeah, or? I wanted everything. I wanted this bomb shelter to feel the atmosphere was the most important thing, obviously. Right. So I wanted it to be shadowy in a sense, but you also, I wanted to make it not scary mm -hmm. because the bomb shelter is a safe place. When you get outside, it's very shadowy and terrifying, but there was every, all the lighting was supposed to be justified. So everything was lit directionally from where the oil lamps were. So in certain scenes, I had developed a kind of night and day system 
Whereas there's no actual, like, concrete passage of time, but if right. you're in an enclosed space, this is what I hate about apocalyptic movies and, like, shelters. Yeah. They always have electricity. Yeah. They always have clean water and food. It's bullshit. Yeah, there's a generator somewhere. Yeah, it's yeah. like, if you're, if you're in a real bomb shelter, it is, you're underground, it's pitch black. The only light source would be whatever you have, and that's very shadowy and dark. So what I read, because I did a lot of research about this, is they say if you're in captivity or something, you have to keep routines. Mm-hmm. That's a really important thing. So I had, during the day, they had all their lamps lit. So everything was much brighter. And then when they went to sleep, they turned down the lamps lower. They right. just had a candle to conserve the energy and also to kind of give your body that way to adjust. Like, it's brighter. It's daytime. It's dark. It's nighttime now. Mm-hmm. So we went through, and it wasn't something that we really drew much attention to, but I'm glad somebody noticed it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that was one of those things that I picked up straight away. It, it just – and it was so subtle, though. So I can understand why a lot of people aren't picking it up. Yeah. But it, it definitely has a psychological impact on how that comes across and how that's portrayed that I, I thought worked flawlessly. Thank you. And, um, I, now, of course, on this podcast, we call ourselves Slock Till, till You Drop. Our, our bread and butter – are movies that were made for under two to five million dollars. Typically, movies that you watch them and and you walk away going, "What the fuck did I just watch?" <laughs> and I know from talking to you and watching you on social media and stuff, you're into those old eighties oh, BZ movies. Um, how much did those kind of movies, even though this is not in that league at all, yeah. this is a step above them. But how much did all those old movies affect your vision and the way you approached making your shorts all the way up through White oh, Man's yeah, Day. Well, so, I mean, anyone who watches the old shorts will know very clearly that this movie had an influence on me. Right. Um, and there's certain aesthetic things that I always bring into a movie, which in Doomsday especially is green lights, mm-hmm. like glowing green. That's very, very 80s. Yes. Uh, I did that a lot in the stall. We did it in Dr. Bless Cinema Dungeon. We did it all sorts of places. We, oh, I, and I caught crazy. the synth in the soundtrack uh-huh. on, on White Doomsday, and I was like, oh, that's 1987 right there. Oh, yeah. And that was Eric Burns or to compose that music. He was very big on that. He sent me the, the Wasteland theme, and I'm like, this sounds like the thing. Oh, my uh, God. Yes. Yes. I was very, very excited about that. Um. But all those movies, like, my thing is kind of, I, I've always kind of feel like I have one foot in the B-movie world and then one foot in the art house kind of weird surrealist right. world. Okay. And with my personal tastes. So I always wanted to kind of marry those two things together. So what I always tell people is that my goal is to prove that artistic expression can involve necrophilia and chainsaws. <laughs> and, perfect, yeah. And it's that I want to use, I love using B-movie imagery or concepts but then putting personal subtext into them and taking them very seriously and playing mm-hmm. them straight because that's just i grew up with art house movies and right. cheesy and trauma and we actually yeah. had toxic crusaders and white doomsday yeah yeah very much based on my childhood as a kid and a lot of um the video game resident evil 2 is mm-hmm. in this with some of the imagery and there's some little nods everywhere we have uh an unintentional a subconscious reference to goosebumps yeah our portrait studio scene and there's a lot of little of little things uh, in there. So, I mean, in every every project you do, with whether it be writing or filming, whatever, it's your life experiences and your it's, it's your your interests. All the movies you like, all the books you like, all those things, and your personal philosophies filtered through your personal life experiences. So, 
no matter what you're writing, even if you don't think that it's personal, mm-hmm. it's in there somewhere. You might not realize it at first. Oh. So all these little subconscious influences are tickling your brain everywhere. So there's lots of yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. As a writer myself, I totally understand that I've gone back and reread manuscripts and been like, oh, so that's the mood I was in when I was it's writing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So there's so much a little influence of thing. You know, I grew up with movies like Chud. And, right. And, you know, actually Chud and Street Trash were big influences on this movie because I love the – and Hellraiser. I love the 80s grime. Yes. Dirt, so yeah. Their fingernails have dirt on them. They're always filthy. And when our actress, that was a problem at first because she's like, well, I want to look nice. Because obviously it's a starring role. She wants to look pretty. Right. She's a very attractive woman. She yeah, wants to be. She, when you're in a bunker, you're not yeah, going to come out looking pretty. I was like, her. you're going to look filthy and ragged every day. I would do their makeup and just make them look disgusting. Like a little boy, I remember one day we were shooting in the bomb shelter and I finished his makeup and he ran outside to play with the owners of the house, their, their kid. And I was doing Hope's makeup. And I walk outside to get Reeve, and it looked like it was a spring day. So there's this bright, super bright, beautiful spring day with a a colorful flower bed. Mm -hmm. And then there is Reeve standing there, and he almost looked like somebody cut him. It was a photograph that somebody cut him out in Photoshop and desaturated him. Oh, wow. He was just gray, and all the clothes were stained. I, I, I aged them, so it didn't look like he fit. It looked fake. Oh, that's awesome. It was so fucking weird. And I'm like, oh, I was, was real screwed with my head a lot. Um, but should have gotten a still of that. That would have been great for <laughs> But that, that kind of, but that's the kind of grimy, nasty, sweaty aesthetic. Yeah. They do in 80s movies, they don't do that anymore because now everyone wants everyone to be attractive. That's yes. another thing I really hate about modern post-apocalyptic movies is you watch like The Walking Dead, everyone's got perfectly coiffed hair mm-hmm. and just a couple artful smudges of dirt. Yeah. driving like brand new you're fully loaded you know toyota whatever it's like it's stupid i wanted everything to have this dirty age yeah. gross feel to it and that was very much inspired by the 80s movies that i loved that's awesome uh the way that we do on this podcast when we when we review a movie we rate it with one of three things either leave it alone because it's perfect as is let it fade into obscurity <laughs> where it belongs or Maybe an aspiring director should remake this movie. Mm-hmm. If you had the chance to remake one of those old 80s B-movies, which one would you want? See, that's tough because I don't generally think that movies should be remade. Only because I think that a lot of the, the movies that we grew up with, that we love, they're very much a product of their time. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. the stuff that made them what we love is because of that, of so many facts. Just like I grew up with certain things, those directors grew up with mm-hmm. certain things. And I think that the, where a lot of remakes fail is, you know, people want to remake or they, they want to do like these 80 throw, 80s throwbacks. They want to re- reference like John Carpenter or Cronenberg or something mm-hmm. or Romero. And they grew up with like Friday the 13th and all these 80s movies. So then they try to imitate that. But what they don't understand is the reason that those 80s movies exist the way they are is because those directors grew up with Westerns, yes. with 50s sci-fi movies. All of those things filtered through their life experiences turned into what they made in the 80s, and every decade should have its own Aesthetic, yeah. Yeah, so I don't know that I would really remake anything. I mean, also, just because I'd be so terrified, I'd fuck it up. (laughs) And I wouldn't. I wouldn't. But if I had to pick... I don't know. I I really can't think of anything that... The example that always comes to my mind was like, you know... Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi had always said, and Rob Taper too, had always said, you know, maybe one day there would be that director that they could give Evil Dead to. And they did it with Fede Alvarez. Yeah. And he totally 
kept the spirit of Evil Dead, but made his own movie. Yeah. And, and that's kind of how, when I envision a horror remake, that's that's a remake done right. Because yeah. it almost feels like a different chapter in the same story. Yeah, I think I would probably... <clears throat> I hate to say, I would remake Chud. This is one of my favorite movies, yeah. and I think that... The stuff that I love about that movie, I, I mean, it's hard because I don't really do Urban Decay movies anymore, but something like Hobo with a Shotgun kind of had that, yeah. that look to it, like it that did, grimy, yeah. dirty feel. So I think it can still be done. But I have so many ideas of things that would be so cool with Chud. But what I'd like to do more than that is okay. actually sequelize something. Okay. I have a Weekend at Bernie's sequel. <laughs> I remember you talking yeah, about this last year, yeah. And Terry Kaiser, which is this weird meta thing that it's very very dark i would do that and i would also do big two zoltar's revenge the tom hanks movie okay. i would turn it okay. into this really fucking whacked out 80s horror movie <laughs> that i think would be really fun that would be yeah and, i think that would be really fun but i mean realistically the thing that i would love to do though is an aliens movie i would and i had pitched uh, to fox for the contest that it's had for fan films mm-hmm. i pitched empty nest and that would be a story that i would i would kill to make into a movie um, that actually Brian Keane ended up adapting into a short story for Brian right. Hunt uh, based on my concepts. So that's what I would, that's what I would do. I would okay. Movie. There you go. Long answer for a short question. <laughs> Perfectly. All right. So what do you have coming up next? What's uh, I know, of course, you're still working on getting uh, Doomsday out on uh, on home media, which yep. may or may not happen at some point later this year that you yep. can't discuss. It's absolutely. Um, we won't be able to have it in time for Christmas. Right. So, uh, but what have, what have you got coming up next? What's uh... Uh, So once we get all that stuff taken care of and finish the festival circuit, I would love to start writing a movie called Masterwork that I've okay. been working on, on and off for about 10 years. And it's pretty much, it's very autobiographical, um, but it's about a film student who graduates uh, school and he's trying to pursue his dream of being a filmmaker and ends up working in local commercials. And uh, he wants, he's having an existential crisis and he wants to, create his dream project, this movie that will be his legacy that he will leave behind. Okay. So he quits, he walks off of set and he decides to go full time trying to make this movie. And the movie kind of follows that and how his relationship and his life crumble because there is a horrible price to pay for following your dreams sometimes. And it's basically a very unromanticized deconstruction of what it's like to be a creative person or an artist and how difficult it can be. And it's a horror movie kind of, well, I mean, that lifestyle's a horror to begin exactly, with. Exactly, <laughs> so. like it's it's very very weird. It's got it's, it starts to get very surreal, but it's extremely dark. But it's going to have some. It's kind of a little bit of the comedy from Old Girl Splatter mm-hmm. and a lot of the darkness from Doomsday kind of combined. So it's kind of I'm not trying to shoot down the middle totally. Okay. And there's going to be some uh, some pretty whacked out nasty stuff going on in there. So that's that's what I'm cool. hoping to do. One of the things I noticed with the screening last night, and I heard you talk about you've done this at other screenings, and and talking about what your next project is kind of made me start. I noticed I started thinking along these lines. Um, when we went into the screening course, you gave us cookies uh-huh. and without giving any spoilers, those cookies actually served a very specific purpose from the movie itself, which to me harkened back to the old fifties and early sixties movies, Castle. William Castle <laughs> and the tingler and, and things like that, where you had that, that moment where you felt like you were immersed in the, yeah. in the movie. Um, did you kind of go into going into this with that in mind that you, Absolutely. you thought that would be a perfect way to, I, I'm a very firm believer that if you are an audience at a film festival, it is the filmmaker's job to make this an experience, not 
just a screen because you can watch it on YouTube. You can, well, not Doomsday, but I mean, you can watch a right. movie on your computer. You can watch it at home. There's no, re- there's no, you have to convince people why should I come out to a film festival? Right. That's like, you can meet the director. You can do all that. But it, I feel like you really have to create an atmosphere that what makes people want to experience something special. And I think that that's a really great way to do it. So I'm very big on that kind of marketing. And I right. learned that from William Castle and Troma. Oh yeah. And stuff. So I always run through conventions or screenings, you know, we always have characters dressed up, uh, you know, for Long Pig, the cannibalism movie. I walked around in a bloody chef apron, handing out dinner invitations uh, that said, you know, choice of meat, breast, thigh, or torso. Nice. And they're bloody, and I had people with apples in their mouth tied up or walking around. <laughs> Very nice. We did, you know, with the stall, I had blood running out of my eyes. Like I was a cult member, and I was handing out, you know, chick tracks of Cthulhu. And, <laughs> you know, I, I just feel like you got to do something to keep things interesting for people, and then they remember the movie more. And, I mean, I just love that kind of shit. Like, I love going to things like that. It's just fun. With the, and with the rising cost of movie tickets nowadays, because, you know, I remember going to a movie for <laughs> I remember going to a movie for, you know, two bucks and, and, uh, that was a double feature even. Mm-hmm. And now you get two bucks when you buy you a Coke at the, Absolutely. at the, at the stand. Do you think that maybe that kind of almost guerrilla style marketing is what's going to be needed to get, now, of course, the tent pole pictures are always going to have, the oh, of course. but to get those smaller films that come up because it is easier for independent filmmakers now than it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, I think uh, every decade they bring 3D back. Yeah, and that's they, true. They try to, and now you know, now it's IMAX everything, and we have leather seats in our theaters. Like you can see, they're so desperately clinging to try to get people right. to come to things. But really, if you just hand out posters, be there. So many yeah. filmmakers get accepted into a festival or they screen somewhere and they don't come. What the fuck's the point of that? Like right? the whole yeah. point of screening is to go then see the audience's reaction and interact with them. Yeah, create a personal connection with those people because other, why? Why do it otherwise? Who cares? Yeah, and it, I mean, like at this one, you know, you had uh, at the end of the movie, you and Brian Keane, who was the executive producer of the movie, were standing up front and answering questions about the production and, and different things related to the movie. And yeah, it makes you feel more connected. It makes you feel like Absolutely. you're a part of that movie Absolutely. experience. And it's, as I guess, especially at Scares the Care, it was really important for me because this crowd has been with me since the beginning and it mm-hmm. felt like we were coming home. Like we had a local premiere in Lancaster where we filmed it. But this felt like our home show. Right. And, you know, it's these are the, not to be mercenary about it, but you need fans and supporters to keep making stuff. And this is yeah. a great way to get them. But it's more than that because you have, it's almost like when you're screening a film as a collaboration between you and the audience. Mm-hmm. And if the audience will engage with you, then you get, everyone gets something out of it. And it, I go to screenings all the time and I get to talk to the filmmakers and I gain such a greater appreciation for a movie oh, yeah. based on that. And, you know, it's like if, I walk into a into a screening and I meet the director Kevin Foster, and Kevin's a cool guy. I'm I'll enjoy that movie more and I'll be I'll appreciate yeah. things so much more. And I'll go and I'll check out his next movie. If Kevin Foster's an asshole, like fuck that guy. I'm not gonna go see his next. Yeah, movie. and that was one of the things that I was always told whenever you know just coming up as a writer and stuff. You're selling yourself because exactly. if they like you, they want your product. Absolutely. If they don't like you, they're going to avoid it. And Absolutely. Yeah, and outside of the the, the mercenary aspect of that is you make friends. Oh, yeah. And it's so nice to meet people that understand what you're doing and support it, and you can support them, and it's this great community, and that's really important, too. And that's the difference between indie film and mainstream cinema is that they don't have that. They're in a, a different world, and I don't like that. And I don't really aspire to get to that point. I'm happy in the dirt and the trenches. Right. 
with all of the, everyone that you know that wants to come out and support these grassroots screenings and stuff, that's more important to me because yeah, I could sell a thousand DVDs and that and be like, oh, cool, this was successful because I made a bunch of money. Or I can come to these screenings and see people actually watching the film and enjoying it, and asking questions and saying they related to it and not make a dime. And I, I will take that any day. Yeah, yeah, you do it because it's what you love, not because it, you're trying to make exactly, money. Exactly, it's exactly yeah. what I mean. I would love to make money. Oh, well, yeah, of course, yeah. If you have any money, please send it to me. <laughs> but, yeah, but that's not the only reason to do it, you know? It's, it's, yeah. it's a business, yes, but it's, it's a passion first. Absolutely. Speaking of DVDs, what kind of special features can we look for? Um, so there is going to be a commentary track with executive producer Brian Keane um, and myself. There is a commentary track with... Uh, Reeve Blasey, who played Riley, and uh, Hope Bickley, who played the mom. Oh, and then, nice. uh, Reeve's real-life mom, Pam Blasey, is on there as well, offering her insight, okay. which is really interesting. Um, there is a feature-length making-of documentary comprised entirely of raw behind-the-scenes footage um, called Armageddon from the Cheap Seats, okay. the making of White Doomsday. And then there is a special effects tutorial on how to age skeleton props. Oh, very nice. Backyard Splatter 101. Skeletons. Very cool. Very so, cool. I know. And for myself, that's, you know, I buy, I buy Blu-rays because that's where all the special features Absolutely. are nowadays. And nine times out of 10, if I bought it, I've seen the movies. So the first thing I do is already commentary tracks. Exactly. I want to hear what they well, did to make Commentary tracks are film school. They are. That's, what I, that's how I learned everything was listening to, especially like Evil Dead and stuff. Those commentaries oh, yeah. were so candid and in-depth. And I'm like, wow. Evil Dead, Hatchet, Adam yeah. Green's commentary track on there was very much about how you, you renegade make a movie. when like, you How you can accomplish a lot with very little. And yeah. that's really important. And it's a way of, it's a particular way of thinking that, you know, can help aid you. And I learned that from watching indie commentaries. Like, and I, that's why I like to go and meet those filmmakers. So I can say, you inspired me to do this. Mm -hmm. And as a filmmaker, when someone comes up to me and says that I inspired them to try to make their first film. And that's something I did at the festival here at Scares the Care is I played a lot of first-time filmmakers because I wanted to help give them a leg up because oh, yeah. that encouragement could be the difference between them quitting tomorrow or pursuing a career, and who knows what could happen 10 years from now. Exactly. And I'm where I am today. I have the small level of success I've attained is because other people helped me up a rung when they could. Yeah. So you pay it forward, and that's what the community is all about. Absolutely. And, and I know I've heard multiple, multiple times this weekend – not just from the the authors and and the filmmakers and people that I I've interacted with, but just overhearing visitors talk about how this is family here. This Absolutely is this is, is you know this is this is our people. These you know everyone understands each other. So yeah, I, I agree with that totally. Getting in these environments and and getting that leg up from people who are where you want to be exactly it means the world. So. Absolutely. Well, Mike, I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me, and uh, appreciate you having me. Really enjoyed uh, White Doomsday. Um, we'll probably actually do a review on the show once we have a little more access yeah, to absolutely. it. Absolutely, but fantastic. Uh, uh, we'll see if it. Uh, right now, I think our 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 biggest hit has been Dead Alive, so we'll see if uh, it ranks right up there with Dead it Alive for is you. One of my all time favorite movies. That's one of the movies that made me want to be a filmmaker. Yeah, Sam Raimi, Peter Jackson, absolutely. Those guys, yeah. my, they still are my idols. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, like I said, thank you for coming, and uh, congratulations on all the success that White Doomsday has had, and let's hope it continues to see that in the future. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Mike. And there you have it. Again, if you get the chance to see I'm Dreaming of a White Doomsday at a film festival or something like that, make sure to take advantage of it. The movie is well worth your time. Um, and Mike, with his marketing 
ploys that he uses for the movie make it truly an experience to go and and see this in a theater, even if it's a small theater and the the projector is a DVD player. It is worth taking a glance at it. And like I also said, I, I can't confirm anything beyond that it will be coming soon on home video. So if nothing else, be sure to watch for that and pick it up on Blu-ray and enjoy the movie and the special features. Uh, Mike is a movie fanatic, and the amount of detail it seems like he's put into this is really going to make it something special. Now, as promised, the long-waiting episode on Without Warning will be coming up next. Uh, We will get it together and get it out there for you. We will be switching our upload schedule, but we'll talk about that a little bit more during that particular episode and some of the changes that are going on here behind the scenes with uh, Schlock Till You Drop. We're not going away anytime soon, so keep your eyes out. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.